focal point, the IMV Imaging Podcast. I'm Harriet, your host, and I'm joined by the usual members of the IMV clinical team. So a big hello to Sam. Hello, everybody. And we have Amy. Hi, guys. And Bethany. Hi, everyone. So this month, we welcome Chris Linney to the podcast. Chris is a European specialist in veterinary cardiology and is currently the head of the small animal cardiology department at Paragrid Referrals in Yorkshire. If you've had the pleasure of joining us on our echocardiography courses, you may have already had the opportunity to share in Chris's wealth of knowledge. So thank you for joining us, Chris, and welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Thanks for having me on. Everyone's looking very festive as well today. <laughs> um, so to start us off, I'm going to take us right back down to basics. So when would you choose to use echocardiography in general practice? Yeah, I think I think it's a tool that probably sometimes is, is overlooked as, as just how good, you know, how good we can get with with ultrasound. So kind of stripping it right back just to thoracic ultrasound. You know, if you have a respiratory case or a, a suspected cardio case, I guess ultrasound sometimes now is, is as good as an x-ray for some of the things that we're looking for. So I um, I often kind of use it as my first line if I think about ultrasound specifically. Um, obviously, I'm slightly biased just being as, as a cardiologist. I'm always going to reach for the ultrasound probe. But I think in, in general practice, there's some really good, um, some good reasons from the point of view of an echo as well so um the clear the clear one will be a, a new newly detected murmur a murmur that's not been present before um that would be your, your biggest your biggest one but there are other things as well so i think um if we think about cats for example um a cat with an arrhythmia well we know that about 80 percent of cats with arrhythmias are going to have underlying heart disease so actually if you hear a cat with an arrhythmia it's probably worthwhile thinking about an echo there may be some structural disease in you know 80 percent. so i think it's probably a good consideration in in those cases um i think sort of also any clinical signs that might fit with heart disease too um and it can be so vague that's the problem isn't it like so you know when you think about heart disease you have like you know well they're going to be coughing they're going to be exercise intolerant they might be syncopal but they might be lethargic they may just be off their food they may not be eating so i think it can be really difficult to kind of choose the cases um, and I think the ones that we probably see most often are the ones that have the you know those clear signs a murmur an arrhythmia respiratory distress um, and I think all three of those would be your, your top reasons for thinking about an echo. So I, that that's an interesting point because it's one of those cases where you don't hear a murmur you wouldn't automatically assume heart but I think we can all, all say we've had cases where we ha they have just presented quite unusual, off the food, lethargic, and then it's ended, we've referred them, and then it's ended up being a heart condition, which we would never have thought of in the first place. Yeah, I mean, and they catch us out as well, you know, at referral level, you know, um, there are cases that might be seen through by another department, off food, lethargic, not eating very well, goes for a CT, and then it's got a massive pericardial effusion, like the great pretender of diseases, like a bit like Addison's, like, you know, it can manifest in so many different ways. So, you know, they can be, they can be really difficult sometimes to, to pick out those cardio cardiovascular cases. When you're of an imaging mindset, you with these cases, it makes you want to just put the probe on literally everything you see. <laughs> Thorax, abdomen, we know, we don't know what's going on. You know, it's um, it's quite something, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I think like as an extension of your stethoscope, a POCUS is such a good a good tool. Um, you know, so you know, I think if you're gonna if you're gonna listen, um, if you're gonna take a blood sample, then a POCUS is just so so good. I was having a, a chat with my wife the other day. Um, so she works in general practice, and we're talking about kind of preoperative screening. So she said, "Oh well, you know, if it's an old cat, we're gonna do a, we're gonna we're gonna do a dental. We're always gonna check for renal disease." And I was like, "But how?" common do you find renal disease um and you know in heart disease in cats 15 percent of the population have heart disease so you know are you looking for the wrong preoperative assessment you know with a blood test you know obviously you know we have to be a bit worried about renal function with ga and uh, low cardiac output but again i guess we have to also be worried about a poor a poor heart function um and a ga as well so kind of if, if you're going to do a, a you know 
do a blood test, should you just be checking left atrial size and, and looking for left ventricular hypertrophy? So I guess it's a food for thought one, but I think, you know, if you're going to preoperative screen a cat, maybe we should be extending it beyond the blood test. That kind of leads you into wondering um, if you were to do a little bit of preoperative screening, looking at left atrial size and um, size of left ventricular wall, et cetera, where, where are your cutoffs? I know that's a difficult question to ask, but, you know, dental disease is a massive welfare issue. Um, and people who, who aren't looking at um, doing these things before they do an operation are going to think, well, I didn't know anyway in the first place and everything went fine. So what, what are your cutoffs for whether you would proceed or if that's an easy enough question to answer? <laughs> it's a, a big quagmire, I think, Amy, but I think, I think a good one, a good one, though. Um, so like, where do you cut off? You know, if one in seven cats have HCM, is that going to stop you from doing your dental? Probably not. Not that one in seven. So, you know, there may be left ventricular hypertrophy, but what it may make you do is be a bit more cautious with your fluid therapy. Like we know those cats that do have HCM, they're not so good at tolerating large volumes of fluid. Um, so if your cat's a bit hypertensive and you think, well, how am I going to help this cat? Well, you might drop your ISO, you might give them more fluids, but in that kind of case, you might actually push them into heart failure. And I guess we all see those cases where they've either had an injection of steroids or they've had fluid therapy and they've been pushed into heart failure. Um, and probably had we known that they had the underlying disease they probably wouldn't have been pushed into failure or we may have been a bit more cautious so I think um the one I guess a cutoff for me would be you put the probe on and you see a, a left atrium that's the size of a house so like some of these cases can I mean that's maybe a bit of exaggeration but you'll see sort of these cases where um the the left atrium you could probably fit you could package all the other chambers into that left atrium and that would be a case where I'd be thinking this cat has just walked into the clinic it looks otherwise fit well and healthy but if I'm going to give it anything um a GA fluid um, any kind of um, you know anti-inflammatory treatment like corticosteroids all of those things could just tip that cat over the edge that's been coping very well plus I guess also the stress as well you know stress in those situations for these cats can push them over too um, so I think it would have to be a left atrium that's of at least moderate dilation for me to start thinking oh hang on a minute let's just be a bit cautious but it's been shown you know if you give enough fluids to a cat with HCM even with a normal left atrium you can push them into heart failure too so just think erring on the side of caution uh, um, if, you, if you're going to be cautious enough to take a blood sample, I guess my my cardiology banner would say, maybe just check the left atrial size at the same time and, and do the walls look chunky. And if you do have a cat that has an enlarged left atrium or, you know, thickened left ventricle, I know the protocols of treatment are constantly changing. We originally, when, I mean, I was uh, only at vet school five years ago and we had an absolute kind of pharmacy of drugs that we would put on cats on if we saw these and I know that's now changing to kind of less is more yeah we had sort of some major breakthroughs uh you know like maybe 10 years ago thinking yes we should be putting cats onto ACE inhibitors yes we should think about clomibendin to kind of help to improve long-term survival um and so um cats sort of went from being just on uh, like aspirin and fruzamide in heart failure to this kind of large number of tablets um you know and you know obviously you know you follow the evidence that's there and at that point the evidence kind of supported all the treatments but more recently we've had some papers that sort of have been run a bit more prospectively um so you kind of hopefully rely the data is a stronger level of data just with it being a prospective study um and in those studies there's sort of maybe less clear evidence for the use of vetmedin or pimabendin in um, in cases of um, HCM with heart failure. Um, there's now evidence to suggest that ACE inhibitors don't prolong survival in preclinical or clinical HCM. So we, um, we're sort of 
yeah, kind of turning the clock back, as it were, um, you know, and, and going back to a, a period where less is more. So, um, you know, we'll always think about frusamide for a congestive heart failure patient. Um, that's sort of a given. Um, and for the cats, that's kind of the, the congestive heart failure treatment that's kind of treatment, standard treatment. Um, and if there is any left atrial enlargement, which if they're in heart failure, there likely is, um, then they're probably also going to need to be on an antithrombotic. Um, and again, the use for antithrombotics in that prophylactic um, arena is very limited too. So we have data to suggest if they've had a thrombus, then giving them an antithrombotic can help to reduce the risk of a subsequent one. But actually, we don't have any evidence that giving it as a primary thromboprophylaxis is, is beneficial. Um, but we know how catastrophic, you know, we've probably all seen those cases that come in and uh, you think, gosh, this poor cat. And, and I think if there is a chance that we could be helping them, then we're, we're going to take it with a drug that has minimal or low, low side effects. Um, and then finally, uh, thinking about another drug for, for a cat, I think if I see cats and they have systolic dysfunction, so those really bad um, systolic dysfunction cases with really advanced heart failure, maybe they've had a myocardial infarct and their left ventricle is kind of looking very heterogeneously thick. Um, so you have areas where it looks very thin and then other areas look a bit chunkier. If the systolic function overall, the global systolic function is reduced, I still probably would consider pimabendin in those cases. Um, but, um, you know, we've, gone, we've had a complete like shift in our treatment management for those patients now. That's really interesting. It's it's nice to know the kind of first line if you do get these cats and you, you scan them and you can see there is left um, atrial enlargement, what to, to go for, what to put them on. Would you ever use or do you use an antithrombotic prophylactically in these cases or even if you can't see a thrombus or they've had a thrombus? Yeah, a good, another good question. It's turned into the cat podcast, but I think it's a good, it's a really good one because I think cats are so difficult with the evidence that we have and the treatment options that we have that are licensed as well. But um, I think for um for primary thromboprophylaxis, um, typically um those cats that we decide to put into treatment, um, we usually consider those if they have anything above moderate left atrial enlargement. And I think the the kind of it's a very nice term to use and sit behind is mod, what's moderate left atrial enlargement. And and the difficulty that we have is it's it's differently described in, in various papers. So where do you decide to have your cutoff? So um, for me as an individual, I tend to use 20, um, so 20 millimeters as a left atrial diameter on the maximal size. So if you take your four chamber view, call that the home view for anyone that's come on my courses. And on that home view, if that left atrial diameter is over, um, over, 20 millimeters, I'm always going to put those cats onto, onto an antithrombotic. Um, in some of the papers, they suggest moderate might be as low as 18 millimeters. Um, and so for me, I guess my question is, how often do I see patients with a left atrium of 18 millimeters um, with a thromboembolic event? And I think that's quite uncommon. I think they have quite stonkingly large left atria. Um, but a study that sort of came out from the RVC showed for every incremental increase in your left atrial size, for every millimetre above normal, your risk of a thrombus increased for every millimetre. So there's kind of, there is some data to support that from 18 millimetres. But clinically, I guess I don't see that, I see many cases where I'd say this left atrium is almost normal and yet they've had a cardiogenic thrombus. So for me, I sort of still use that 20 millimetres. So either 20 millimetres or signs of smoke in the left atrium. So you've got that core atrial function and there's um, slow flow moving through the left atrium. Or kind of the big the big elephant in the room is if you see a great big thrombus there in the left atrium as well. So then you know, that won't be that will be the other the other time that I'd consider it too. Um, and the last kind of one that's just coming in now is also we look at the fractional shortening of the left ventricle. Um, but you can also do the same thing for your left atrium as well and see sort of how it changes um, in the in the cardiac cycle. Um, and so a reduced fractional shortening of your left atrium would also infer 
or atrial function. So that's sort of just coming in now as a, another way of assessing atrial function. But I think most atria, if their function is poor, they're going to be dilated. So it's kind of that little cherry on top rather than everything else is normal, uh, but the fractional shortening isn't, you know, they're going to come all come together. No, that's really no, really interesting. Um, hearing more about more about cats. I hope that we will we will add some variety to the podcast. I promise you. <laughs> okay. No. And what I was going to say to steer it to steer it away from cats for a second. We've talked a lot about um, the uh, sort of a bit about the applications and the usefulness of of sort of ultrasound for assessing assessing the heart and the thorax. But but where where do people sort of where do people start? Is there any specific equipment that we, we think that they have to have? Is there anything that they have to have to begin with? And how do you get started? Kind of kind of learning as well. I think it'd be interesting to hear everybody's thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I'd actually kind of put that out to everyone here. And I guess when you first graduated and you went into practice kind of what level of ultrasound skill did you have my my skill comes from 15 years ago and I think hopefully it's being taught better now than it was when I you weren't allowed to touch the ultrasound probe as a student when I was at vet school um it was sacred and it was only the job of the imager or the cardiologist so you got very little experience before graduating but I think like a left atrium aorta is almost a day one skill if you can take a blood sample you should be able to do a left atrium aorta you can spay a bitch on day one you should be able to do a left atrium aorta so I think probably needs to to kind of come on to um maybe it already is I'm so long in the tooth from vet school that um it maybe it's on the curriculum now that but it was certainly wasn't when I was at vet school so be interested to hear what your thoughts are on that um I had the same experience as you my imaging rotation all I learned was that um we are terrible at x-ray positioning uh and um we were in dark rooms watching people scan and not having a clue what's going on and also doing a really bad job of restraining patients so didn't touch the probe didn't learn any of the theory and um I actually didn't have a cardiology rotation when I went so that wasn't ideal either but um yeah I think it would be super empowering for people to be able to do a very simple sort of like um algorithm isn't it whether a cough is cardiac or not and that would be let's look at the left atrium sort of thing and that's quite it always feels like a day one point you in the right direction thing doesn't it but I don't think many people graduate with the confidence to to know that that's what you need to do you should have gone to Liverpool. We have a great cardiology department. Not that I'm biased. <laughs> I think everyone becomes biased to their own vet school in a, to a certain extent. But well, I mean, I mean, I think then kind of going going back to the start, if anybody's completely new to kind of echocardiography or ultrasound, I mean classically for performing echocardiography they would typically use sort of an ultrasound system with with what's known as a sort of phased array transducer so these these are ones that they, they effectively can sort of um, the way that the ultrasound is produced it can be directed in such a way as to create a sort of large sort of sector style image from a very sort of small footprint and they're also sort of designed to be able to kind of maximize the frame rate and facilitate some of those Doppler examinations so that's classically what a lot of people will be sort of thinking of when they think of a cardiac scanning transducer but I think when we're, we're coming back a lot of what we're seeing is this an important part is actually just assessing left atrium size and it's, it's probably important to point out if you are getting started and you don't have that equipment you can still achieve these views with the types of transducers that you would use for abdominal ultrasound as well so if anybody's out there and they've got a system that um, they primarily use for abdominal ultrasound and they have the typical kind of curved what's known as a 
micro-convex transducer, you can use that um, to get started even for assessing some of the, the chamber sizes as well. And then after that, I think it, it really comes down to kind of to, 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 to practice. So it's starting to apply it and, and working forward from there um, to sort of achieve those, those initial sort of basic views. Yeah, very true. Um, I, I agree. I think um, you often think when you when you when you are starting off that you have to have all the all singing all dancing equipment, but a, uh, you know a micro convex probe, typical abdominal probe, um, is it makes beautiful images for cats for sure. Like a, you know I've seen sometimes nicer images on a, on a fa on the micro convex than you can sometimes see on the phased array. Uh, you know when I've gone into practice, um, and I think you're right. Um, you know for a lot of for a lot of your kind of initial uh, scanning, especially if we're thinking about we 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 just need to know is the ventricle contracting well is the left atrium enlarged are there any evidence well is there any evidence of cardiogenic edema um you know looking for things like beelines as well uh then are you know our typical um machines that are in practice will be completely sufficient for that um and then the more echo that you do uh, you might want to have that higher level of frame rate and you know more quality and you know, higher quality of image and you, you might invest in a phased array but sort of many of the systems that are out there these days the modern systems if you if you kind of got into that kind of niche of wanting to do more cardio then you can usually add a phased array onto most of the systems without having to outfit a whole new a new a whole new ultrasound machine would you say that if you're wanting to do an EPIC study, which is a great thing for GPs to be able to do, that you're absolutely fine to just have a phased array probe for that and you'll be you'll be fine to just use that? For the uh, for the um, epic studies, yeah. So I guess for, for if we think about those epic those epic patients, those are are, are new new onset murmurs in perhaps older dogs that are medium sized or smaller. Um, so you're kind of thinking, well, this is probably a dog that's gradually getting some exomatous change. Um, and the two two measurements that we need for those dogs is uh, the, what how big is their left atrium? So a left atrium aorta ratio um, from the short axis up at the heart base, uh, and then um, I call it the mushroom view, but the left ventricular view, so the right parasternal short axis view at the level of the pillory muscles but mushroom is so much shorter to say um so the mushroom view um at the um at sort of on the on the right hand side so these are two views that are very very close together when you're scanning so you almost flip from one to the other uh, quite quickly when you're scanning um and you could use uh, you could use the phased array but also i think microconvex would be absolutely fine in those cases as well so you know they'll have enough definition um and hopefully enough power in the smaller dogs to be able to kind of really see both of those structures um and i guess the tip would be to try and lay those dogs in lateral so that the heart is closer to the chest wall and that will also help to improve the image quality and hopefully keep the lungs out of the way as well. So, um, you know, I probably, you know, if with using the microconvex, I probably would try and put them on the side for that too. I remember in a lot of the courses that we've um, done together that obviously the, the LA to AO is in, in a sense, the holy grail of right-sided views because it's difficult and everyone wants to be able to do it, especially it's part of the EPIC study. So, Tips for success for anybody struggling with it. Um, I think part part of your tips for success are to lower your expectations and not have not be too too harsh on yourself because it is so difficult. But what advice would you give to people to try and make it a bit more accessible? Yeah, it's so true. I think, um, you know, a lot of time in the courses, people are after that textbook image where you get this beautiful Mercedes-Benz sign, you see all three valve leaflets. We should all be aspiring to that. But in reality, uh, you know, we kind of have to also know when is good, good enough, you know, so you need to kind of know, does a dog need treatment? Does a dog not need treatment? And when it comes down to the minutiae of detail, the more level of information you have, so the better quality image you have, the better. Um, but if it's sort of a case of, do we start treatment now or or do we wait sort of six months and rescan them in six months? Um, I think that, you know that you might sort of find a patient where you do the scan and it's not completely clear so how do you improve that image 
think time and patience, um, making sure you've kind of given yourself enough time to do it that you're not feeling like you're having to rush. Um, a patient that's very compliant um, as well, because I think a patient that's kind of stressed and anxious um, will kind of just make it more difficult to get these images. Um, and how do we achieve that? So um, you know, I guess we kind of then go into, do we think about um, anxiolytics? Do we think about something to take the take the, le the level of nerves down if they are anxious? So thinking about sort of gabapentin or trazodone, um, I tend not to reach very much for injectable sedation, but if I do, then often it would be butorphanol. Um, and um, if, uh, if, if that's sort of not sufficient to improve the image quality, um, then the next sort of thing would be um, coming on a course, I reckon. That's what I'm going to do. I'm going to plug a course. Um, so if you're having any trouble um, trying to get those images, there are often tips that you can do, but it's often a case of you need to kind of have somebody to help to guide you with those. I think trying to get that, because I think it is a really difficult view and every, it's touted as the view that you need for so many different things when it comes to cardiology. But it actually is a really difficult view to get firstly, but also to get repeatedly as well. So um, the, the problem that you have is you can have your aorta right in the middle of your image. You've got your lovely Mercedes Benz, but dependent on how the probe is sat on the chest, kind of whether you're rocking cranially with the probe and pointing a little bit backwards towards the diaphragm, or whether you're kind of rocked a little bit kind of from the diaphragm point of view, but pointing towards the, uh, the neck, uh, then you're going to see the different structures that move around the aorta just by that kind of rocking from cranial to caudal. So um, I think it probably is a case of if you starting off, um, try and get a beautiful mushroom. Um, so a beautiful mushroom for me is a lovely round one. So you have a very symmetrical mushroom. Um, and if you think of your left ventricle, your left ventricle has the same pressure across the whole of the wall. So it should be round. It should never really be oval because that wouldn't really work with the high pressure that it's under. So in, in most diseases, in pretty much all diseases, that left ventricle might be thin-walled. It might be patchy in terms of thickness, like a cat with a myocardial infarct, but it should still be round. Um, so if you haven't got a round mushroom to start with and you're fanning up the chest wall or sliding up that chest wall towards your left atrium aorta view, and you already have an oblique view of the left ventricle, then you're probably going to find it very difficult to get a nice view of your left atrium aorta. Um, and it'll be little tiny movements. So uh, I think kind of one of the big things uh, that you see is the people that are probably struggling more with echo are probably trying to do sort of the level of movement you might use for an abdo scan when actually it's very tiny movements. And the smaller the patient, it's even smaller movements. So sometimes it's sort of micro millimeters to get between these different views um, rather than great big fanning motions. So it slightly depends on the patient too. But come on a course. Uh, we're all very friendly and um, we'll definitely be able to help you out with um, with any, any problems that you're having. I guess that's one of the nice things, actually. I guess it's a side thing here for this question. But one of the nice things is you can come to a course with the level of info that you have and build on it there's always something you know there's always going to be tips and tricks and nuggets of information um and it's so much better for those things to be visual like and to be able to see them um and and do them as kind of a visual a visual thing um but um those are probably my tips from from a podcast point of view that we could probably get across in a podcast it's always so difficult to give tips across a podcast when it's such a practical skill um taking those tips ones that i really really struggle with and i think this would be very useful in practice is how do you do an echo on a bulldog or a French bulldog or those dogs with really barrel chests? I, I personally really struggle with it. And I imagine there's probably a few other people out there that do also. 
so yeah, I guess how how do you do them badly? Like, it probably when I think about myself, um, you know, when you, but it, it's not it's often not us, you know, it's going to be down to the conformation, the shape of the ribs, the size of the you know the intervert the intercostal spaces, uh, the fact that often when you try and scan them, they're stressed and brachycephalic and having difficulty breathing, and that's going to increase and hyperinflate their lungs. Um, that the hearts are very small and very squat as well. They have like a, a slightly different position for their hearts. Um, so I, I think that they are the best way. To to make a cardiologist humble is to put a bulldog in front of them because um, whoever whoever is scanning them will always say to you actually it's so much harder to scan a bulldog or a brachycephalic than any other breed um, and so uh, you know if I have a if I have some uh, if I have a visitor in I kind of prepare them to start with I said I know you're coming to see some excellent imaging in cardiology but I'm afraid this one's not going to be as good as you might as my expectations would be and probably yours as well um, because they just don't scan as easily as other breeds um, when the puppies and the hearts are small against the chest wall and they've not yet got the um, the upper end obstruction and sometimes you get beautiful images in the very small puppies that I see um but you know if it's like a an older six-year-old English bulldog that's kind of overweight um and really brachycephalic um you know that's kind of my I kind of um my heart sinks a little bit when I think about how good the echo is going to look oh no that's fair no, no, that's very humbling um thank you for that yeah, no, I was going to ask, um, for your trauma cases, would you would there ever be a situation where you would skip doing your plain film, skip doing your um, ultrasound, and then go straight to CT and just kind of try and get an all-around basis because you, you're, you're concerned for the heart, but you're actually concerned for everything else that's going on? Would you just go straight to CT? Would that ever be a path that you took? Yeah, we, it's a good question. Um, so we often do, as, exactly as you say. So sometimes if we have some breeds where we're thinking about kind of can we operate and give them an interventional improvement in their condition, um, then we'll often think about a CT to really get a good level of information about the, the coronary arteries and things. Um, and those ones will often be under GA. Um, so that's kind of our first difficulty with kind of trying to assess things like pressure gradients and severity of conditions is that as soon as you put them under GA, kind of all of those things will get uh, will improve so um you'd almost need to have normal values um for an anesthetized dog um and abnormal values for an anesthetized dog so that that's that's a tricky it'd be tricky actually so because often our decision making about does a dog need to have a, a ct for assessing cardiac function might be because we're thinking about surgery um and then the indications for surgery are often based on what we see on the um the conscious scan uh without sort of lots of drugs on, on board um and i guess that's our slight difference from the the human world in that uh, our, all of our CTs currently are either heavily sedated or usually GA'd, um, usually GA'd for, for assessment of the heart. Um, so I think we're, um, I've got some beautiful CTs of the heart, but they're often when we're looking for like the actual structural change rather than the um, sever like the severity grading of the condition. So I think they kind of go hand in hand though. So, you know, when you have a, an odd cardiovascular case, so if I see a, a really unusual congenital case and now it doesn't all make sense from the echo, sometimes you need to kind of get um, a view of all of the vasculature that's kind of coming back to the heart as well. Um, so looking at all the vein, the venous return and the arterial um, out supply from the heart to the body. Um, so yeah, I think CT kind of comes in in those ones um, and sort of having a, a, you know, a, a thin, a thin slice, a thin slice, um, lots of detail is kind of important with those very small dogs as well. Yeah, it's future planning, isn't it? So yeah, it, 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 I know we always revert back to the human world, but it's it's where we we're always a few years behind, so we're always kind of adopting ideas from from them. So yeah, any patient in a critical condition, as long as they they're breathing, we've got airways and they've got kind of some kind of heart rhythm, we will get them straight to CT and just do a trauma series and assess what they've got and try and manage it. it just I, I can feel it getting that way. It's just baby steps, baby steps, isn't yeah. it? 
Yeah, it's it's really it's always really interesting hearing about these other modalities um, and um, and uh, their use in in uh, in cases. Just got sort of almost going the opposite way for a bit. Um, Chris, do you, do you still use just plain radiography a lot for cases? Is it something you use at all, or is it is it something that's not as not as applicable now with the sort of way that ultrasound has improved? Yeah, so like my emergency emergency case that comes in will always start with an ultrasound. Um, you know, days gone by, we'd be doing radiographs to look for cardiogenic edema, um, yeah. and now I'll always start with with a, with an ultrasound, um, a thoracic ultrasound. Uh, if the left atrium is is normal, um, and there are beelines, and I often kind of want to understand what other kind of causes are there for those beelines. Um, I think that's often you kind of see the beelines and uh, you might start thinking, well, this is going to be cardiogenic edema. But um, as we know, kind of there's so many other things that can cause those beelines to be there. So thinking hemorrhage or uh, like infiltrate from, um, you know, bronchopneumonias, um, neoplastic infiltrate, so cell and fluid infiltrates, um, and not just thinking it's, it's going to be cardiogenic. So um, if the left atrium is normal, then that at that point, I'm often thinking, okay, well, we need to look to understand why there are beelines there. Sometimes I, you can get a good idea they're all kind of focused in one lung field so you know if it's ventral and cranial you know that's our typical area that you think about on a radiograph for aspiration pneumonia um and then usually that's all focused in one area but um often i think you you may see beelines in other places as well with aspiration pneumonia because it's just picking up sort of such like sort of mi micro detail that you don't necessarily see on a radiograph um so i still use radiographs in the cases that don't sing and dance like a cardiac case but if it looks as though everything fits with cardiology and it looks like cardiogenic edema um I'll often start treatment on the basis of my um, my scan, um, but also just having that level of thinking. Well, if they're not responding how you expect them to, remember to you know remember to kind of go back and review the diagnosis. Uh, so in those cases, if they're not typically responding how we might want to, and I can think of a case where we saw a dog, um, we treated it for heart, it was in heart failure, it had um, it had atrial fibrillation at the time as well, um, and uh, you know we looked at the the dog and thought, well, you had enough reason why that you should be better, but he was still. Uh, you know, still kind of really dyspneic after two hours. Um, and so we did a radi we'd radiograph this dog and he also had, had aspiration pneumonia as well. So, you know, sometimes it's important to think if it's, it's in those critical cases where they come in and they're not very well, definitely, you know, do what's important and kind of your top, you know, triage that case. Um, but if it's not triaging and responding how you might expect it, then that's probably when I read for, for radiographs. Um, or maybe like a coughing dog, a dog that comes in as a coughing patient, but has a heart murmur. Um, those ones probably would always have um, some form of imaging beyond echo um, to try and understand why are they coughing? You know, is it is there evidence of uh, small airway disease or upper airway disease, uh, pulmonary parenchymal disease? So I'd often be thinking about some survey radiographs in that type of case. Yeah, be exciting to see where it goes. I was just thinking um, with your emergency cases, when they come in, um, they're going to be unstable. Um, but there's a lot to be said for uh, X-ray under GA inflated views etc so what kind of um, line do you tread there do you see much much benefit in in a non-inflated view ga1 or um just what are your thoughts yeah. on that um yeah it's a good one i think a very dyspneic patient um if you end up with an expiratory radiograph it can make uh, like a difficult case even more difficult because you know you're going to sort of get an increase in in artifact from a poorly inflated lung which is going to give you that kind of appearance of extra lung pathology that may not be there so trying to get sort of nice inflated radiographs on a dyspneic patient is difficult um if they come in and they're truly uh, in respiratory distress then i tend still i 
would still probably still go for a POCUS um, initially um, and looking to sort of say, can we can we kind of diagnose this? With A POCUS should take you one or two minutes really to get all the information, probably even less than that really when you get really good at them. Um, and so I think there's enough usually from that for me to decide, do they need, to, do we need to do, be doing more? Um, but, you know, for example, if that case comes in and, uh, you know, and everything looks okay from the ultrasound point of view, potentially you know maybe there's pneumothorax and that's much more difficult to see really with with ultrasound um and you really would need radiographs so um but then in those sorts of cases you probably would be expecting very very normal looking hearts uh you know and then that would i'd already almost already be jumping into into that or maybe the history of it as well you know trauma uh, you know something some form of trauma that makes you think actually we're going to have to look for radiograph you know on radiographs looking for like trauma to the ribs or you know just lung lung collapse lung collapse as well um so i think there's a place i definitely think there's a place for it and obviously under g for those patients uh, you've got you know you've got security of their airways you can supply oxygen um if they are a patient that's very critical you've you know you're already one step ahead if, if anything does start to go downhill um so i think there's definitely you know there's definitely merit in that too but i think for a lot of the ones that i see i tend to um you know we'll have the oxygen cage ready to go uh, we'll get the tfas done uh, just as soon as they're kind of uh, comfortable enough for that to be done um often that's kind of straight away but maybe after some you know some mild anxiolytic medications as well um and then you know and then cracking on on the back of that i don't think there's one for i don't think there's like a one size fits all for it though what kind of anxiolytic medication do you tend to reach for do you find diazepam is useful for a cats or is it just i mean is this me is this me or for the cats <laughs> that's a can of worms <laughs> I, I, I quite like the idea because I really enjoy anesthesia. I love kind of um, all the, the pharmacology of it. I always thought, you know, um, midazolam or diazepam would um, would be fantastic um, in combination with butorphal. But I tended to find that midazolam and diazepam don't really, don't really work that well, as, as well as you'd think if you're wanting to reduce anxiety, which is how it should work. So is it always butorphanol for you, kind of top end of the dose? Or what do you like to go for? Yeah, so I guess my my range is usually um, usually that I kind of go for 0.3 mg per kilo of butorphanol. That's kind of my standard dose when I'm thinking about butorphanol. Um, and I do go up to 0.4, sometimes 0.5 mg per kilo if I have a patient that I think needs a little bit more. Um, but I think there's sort of a limit to how much anxiolytic effect you see with butorphanol alone. So you kind of maybe get some mild improvement. Um, I love the idea for a lot of patients of giving some oral treatment, you know, thinking about trazodone, thinking about gabapentin. Um, but, you know, they take a bit of time to take effect. And if these are patients that won't take medications because they're acutely dyspneic, uh, then those probably are much more difficult medications to administer in those settings. Um, and then I think it would often come down to what I've seen on a TFAS. So if I have seen this uh, dog or cat has fluid that needs draining, for example, whether it be pericardial or pleural effusion, that might change the level of heaviness of sedation that I might choose because I know I'm going to be going to, on to do something a little bit more invasive. Um, so uh, if it was a, if I think about sort of the congestive heart failure patient, I'll often think about giving them butorphanol. That's not enough for them because they're so anxious, maybe considering some ACP. Um, I don't tend to reach for metatomidine in those cases without knowing really how the heart's working, those dyspneic patients. Um, but then also alfaxalone as well has been one that we, we we've used quite a lot of late as well. Um, and I guess not so, not so much as an anxiolytic, you know, we're kind of giving them an induction agent really. Um, but, you know, it will kind of help just to it will help you to be able to do your things without them becoming too stressed. The kind of risk would be in a very sick patient. Often, you know, you don't need as high doses for, for most of the drugs that we give when you have a very sick patient. So be cautious of that when you're giving um, an induction agent that in, in a healthy dog, it might be absolutely fine to give them your standard dose. But in a sick dog, 
yourself, you probably have to be a bit more cautious about how much you give. So we tend to give to effect. Um, we'll start off with like a quarter of a milligram per kilo of alfaxalone quite quickly got to half a mig per kilo if that's not enough on a quarter um and you think uh, you know you think sort of um going higher and higher than that we'll always have some et tubes around and a, a laryngoscope just in case you know we have any 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 problems with with apnea um but touch wood um that's not been an issue so far but uh yes i think it's always kind of being prepared um is kind of being forewarned so uh, is that the saying is that how the saying goes um but something along those lines fail to prepare equals prepare to fail yeah exactly yeah so we're, we're, we're ready for every eventuality well this is a question to both of you so what is the different types of conditions that you would say you wouldn't see on an ultrasound but you would pick up on a ct for for cardiac conditions it's it's difficult really because I think a lot of things that we, we would see on CT um, because it's just fantastic. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of things that you wouldn't see. The, the issue that we always have with CT is um, the motion artifact and the fact that we're, we're trying to, in essence, image a moving, beating muscle, which the heart is, isn't it? So I think we'll always run into issues with that. So whereas you could potentially spend more time with ultrasound, getting more precise images and hovering there for a long time and kind of running through the motion of the image, with CT, you've kind of got one shot you've got a certain amount of time to get your arterial and you've got a certain amount of time to get your portal venous. So you're, you're working against the elements where in, in essence, even though if it was a trauma case, you'd have to be quick with ultrasound, you can take a bit more time with it. Do you know what, you I, love, I love the idea. Like I really love it. I like, you know, just being able to put the dog through the CT and just run it through in seconds and have the whole study done in, in seconds. And like for a critical patient that's really struggling, it's such a nice idea. Um, I think the difficulty just is, is, yeah. is going to be kind of down to the reality of the costs, I think as well as, as well as kind of the stability of the patient but also probably a mind shift as well um you know because i know in the human world that would be quite a common thing for a trauma case is to um is to run them through the ct you know head chest but uh, abdomen and, and pelvis would be a really common series in an emergency er um and um i guess we're not probably there uh, where i am at the moment so or where i've worked in the past but i think it's such a it's such a nice idea and you know that level of information you get there's not really any, any other modality that gives you all that information in one shot um so yeah it's a nice idea but you, you need to kind of get on with that one and, um, and put it out there as an idea to, to everyone yeah and i think that comes as well just um from from sometimes CT, although it's fantastic, we always have to remember it's a large radiation dose. We have to use contrast, and if your patient's contraindicated, and sometimes you almost think it could be a little bit overkill. So you put your your you're charging the customer quite a lot to to use it, whereas you actually could get the diagnosis from a different modality. So it's 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 knowing that really, isn't it? You're trying to put me out of a job. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, I like that. That's a good slogan. But it's really, I think it's really good. I think it's a really good, uh, a good modality. You know, I think probably one in uh, the access is difficult in GP practice. And I guess a lot of those cases end up, uh, you know, a lot of those patients end up uh, being managed in GP practice, but the reality is they're probably not access to a CT scan. Um, but, um, you know, and there's very few trauma centers, like, you know, true trauma centers like you might have in the human world. Um, but, you know, for some of those critical care centers where they do have a huge input of cases, just walking, you know, walk-ins almost, uh, then that, that, that you know that kind of serves almost like a human ER and that's that probably be the, the model that you'd be after question for the 3d yeah, people nice. when are you wanting to um, 
When are you wanting to MR a heart and when are you wanting to CT a heart? If you're going to pick a 3D modality, what different cases are we picking our modality for? Yeah, I, I think I was just thinking kind of if you're if you're after function rather than structure, probably function uh you know on you know on a typical echo is gonna be better than a CT. I guess you can get some CT studies where you just keep running them over the heart to get an ECG gated movement study. Um but uh yeah, so functional functional kind of assessment of heart probably still would be echo. Um, you know, I think the the next step would be, you know, functional assessment on MR, which is kind of often what's done now in in, in human worlds for some of the assessments of function. Um, but that's not gonna be probably applicable to our patients anytime soon. Um but then if you're thinking about kind of those um, those studies where you're looking at arterial phases and venous phases, looking at things outside of the heart, but within the chest. So, you know, where the lungs start to kind of um, evade our ability to see some of the great vessels, uh, like the dorsal aorta, for example, or, um, you know, the venous return from the azygous. These are all things that we just don't see very well on, on echo, um, but you get beautiful studies on, on an angiogram. So um, things like very small details, like a coronary sinus or coronary artery abnormalities um, they'll be much easier picked up on on ct um although um they kind of there's a, a, a thought that you have to do a ct angio for a dog with pulmonic stenosis uh, that has um uh you know like a, a brachycephalic history like a frenchie or an english bulldog um but i think that is um probably belts and braces so i rarely ever do a ct angio on a brachycephalic dog that needs a balloon um i would assess it on the CT on the fluoroscopic angio to start with, um, and assess from multiple views to see if I can see the two coronary ostia. Um, but um, there's sort of a, a shift to sort of say, well, probably you need to do a CT angio, and I'm just not sure that's always necessary for those dogs. Um, and I probably do it one in every 25 of, you know, off the top of my head, about one in 25 brachycephalics that I end up having to do a CT angio, and all the others are, are absolutely fine. Um, but that I guess that comes with seeing lots of them and assessing lots of coronary arteries on echo. So I, I, I have never done uh, an MR of, of a heart. Um, so I've worked in places where we've had the ability of doing it, but um, I think, and, I, and it makes absolutely beautiful pictures. And I guess from uh, left ventricular function and, and movement of flow through the heart, it's a really, it's something that's done quite a lot in people looking for scar. So looking for kind of scar in the, in the left ventricle, it's a really good modality for looking at scar and measuring degree of scar in, in, in humans. Um, I, I'm not sure what the indications currently would be for dogs and cats for, for a cardiac MR, um, other than kind of trying to just expand the field at this stage, you know, like what more information would you get from your MR of a heart that you wouldn't necessarily see on a high quality CT or you haven't seen on echo? And I don't know, Bethany, what your thoughts are on that. Like, do you, do you see like a place for, for MR in small animals? I guess also our hearts are much smaller to start with. So it's almost like doing a, a you know, a fetal or a pediatric um, MR of the heart. Yeah, so it'd be a paediatric setting. And I know they are done. I've never worked at a centre where we've done cardiac on children. So I don't have much knowledge on it. Um, but in essence, with the paediatrics, unless it was absolutely necessary, they would always have MR over CT. Um, so there's definitely a space for it. Whether it'd come through to small animal, I, I don't know, because I'm not sure what kind of information that they get out of it, especially when ultrasound does such a good job and that's what they tend to tend to go for first um but i've never done any is that radiation the the ct yeah is that why they go for mr yeah CT so yeah absolutely so realistically the, there's only few situations where you would ever ct a pediatric and it would have to be very like critical conditions where that's ever chosen otherwise it would always be mr and that's because we always want to keep the radiation 
you know, away from the radiation in essence, only if it's absolutely necessary. So it's always that risk benefit. And with paediatrics, the risk is much higher. Um, and I think for CT for me, um, like when I choose CT over echo, it's just when it doesn't make sense on the echo, then uh, often you're looking for things that are kind of probably extra cardiac. If it's not clear on a scan of the heart and it's going to, it's something that's affecting the heart, but extra cardiac, that's probably my first reason for thinking about CT. Um, you know, so often, it, and often it's things like venous drainage. Um, so unexplained ascites that you can't explain from the heart perspective or, um, you know, murmurs that aren't occurring because of changes within the heart. So there's something out with the heart that's causing a murmur. So sometimes like an arteriovenous fistula or malformation can cause you to get like a PDA type murmur, but there's no, uh, there's nothing to see on the echo other than like volume overload on the heart. You just don't see the cause of it. So you then think, well, there's a clearly a, a very loud murmur and it's causing changes in the heart, but I cannot see it on the echo. And then probably be thinking about an advanced imaging modality at that point as well. Well, I, I had a question just um, completely sort of more left field um, with um, with what's the most uh, sort of interesting species you've performed echocardiography on, Chris? Sort of we've talked a lot about uh, cats and dogs and a little bit about humans. Um, but w what other things have you seen um, over your, your kind of time practicing? <laughs> Do you know? it's a good question um only because i was at a training course the other day and whilst i was preparing for the training course i searched on my computer for ultrasound just put in ultrasound um and it came up with some videos from 2016 um from like october 2016 which happened to be like the 20 week scan of my son um and so at that point they're looking at the heart and they're looking kind of at the vessels and the development of the vessels um and i had not ever looked at it in so much detail because you know when you're in like if, you, if you've had kids and you've gone in for these scans then you have it either it's on the little screen in front of you so it's quite a small thing to have a look at or you know you're just overwhelmed with like the fascination of the fact that there's a living baby inside your your partner um and um and um so I sat down like I was trying to prepare the CPD and I spent about half an hour looking at the heart on uh, at his little heart um and things you know just like embryologically you know like the big foramen ovale that's there embryologically to allow the blood to go from the right atrium to the left atrium you could see it so clearly um on there and I had never stopped to think about it till I kind of was procrastinating about writing a talk um and um and I could see that um you know I could see all of these really cool thing so actually for me um it kind of i was sat there thinking oh you know how cool would it have been to be a fetal cardiologist um and like really look at kind of fetal fetal hearts like as a side if i think if i hadn't ended up as a, a veterinary cardiologist i probably would have tried to get into pediatrics and maybe ended up naturally into pediatric cardiology i don't know um but um yeah it's totally fascinating and then i was, I was driving back last night and i was thinking ah. Oh, how how much work would it be to convert into being a uh, you know a human uh, pediatric cardiologist? And then I thought I probably would be killed by my family if I decided to do any more postgraduate studying. Um, and um, but that's probably by a side. But that was probably a really fascinating ultrasound. Um, but in terms of species, um, I guess I kind of got involved a few years ago with some work out in China, um, working with Asiatic black bears. So these are the bears that um, that kind of come from the bio farming trade. Um, and in China um, and across Southeast Asia, it's still legal to have bio farming, but there are certain practices that are allowed and certain that aren't allowed. Um, and it kind of gives us that traditional um, traditional me medicine that's, um, that's used across, across many countries. Um, but there are practices that are illegal um, and there are bio farms that now realize that there are synthetic, you know, synthetic types of um, agents that we can use that we don't need to be um, having, you know, farming 
farms with 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 huge numbers of bears in them uh, but the problem is these bile farms can be up to 200 or 300 bears you know it's like thinking about a dairy farm in the, in the uk but these bears are not as amenable as a dairy cow um or most dairy cows um and um and they also need kind of uh you know they've often had quite significant health issues so they have um they have a stoma between their gallbladder and their body wall so that the bile just drips into a tray underneath them and they're kind of kept in cages for for the whole life um so a typical cage would be for a kind of a 200 kilo bear would be the size of a normal desk um and they'd be in that cage for 15 20 years if they've not died of um of cancers of the liver just from chronic inflammation um and so some as new generations are sort of new generations as younger generations are coming in they're taking over from the from their older generation saying actually we, we don't need to be doing this but then they've got this huge number of bears to do something with so animals asia is a charity uh, and there's a number out there in in southeast asia that will rescue the bears and bring them to to a sanctuary um and if you think of um you think of kind of like the the bears that have been sat inside a, a, a desk space uh, then have access to a great big sanctuary with gardens and uh, you know lots of things to help to improve their um like pastoral care as well so there you know there's loads of things for them there's pools for them to run around in and you see these bears that arrive at the sanctuary kind of come out of their little cages um that they've been kind of transited back to the sanctuary in and they're just completely overwhelmed they've never seen green they've never seen grass they've never seen uh, you know they've never seen a pool of water they just kind of have a, a you know like a bucket of water in with them um you know they're getting food that's uh, not just really poor nutritional value they're kind of getting really good food so these bears though end up with with heart disease um and so i kind of um got involved with this by uh one of my um previous uni mates uh, was working out in the sanctuary um and they sent me some ecgs and said we've had a couple of bears that have suddenly died we're not quite sure why can you tell from the ecgs we looked at the ecgs and i've never seen a bear ecg in my life so um and these are also um ecgs of bears that are anesthetized as well so it's going to impact them whether they're on their side, whether they're upside down, all of these things are going to make a difference. Um, but they're doing so much good work in time to trying to understand normal, um, normal bear health. But these are all kind of abnormal bears. There's very few healthy bears with, with what they've been through. Um, and there were a couple of sudden deaths where post-mortem showed that they'd had ruptured aneurysms of their aorta. So at that point, um, sort of the question was, well, can we... Uh, firstly can we kind of predict which bears that's going to happen to can we um help those bears to try and reduce that risk and actually when we went out to um the first time we went out was in 2013 and, and when we went out in 2013 we saw that loads of these bears had evidence of really bad hypertension systemic hypertension a bit like one of the reasons that humans get aortic aneurysms you know would be uh sometimes it's kind of down to connective tissue disorders but often hypertension as well um and the bears get exactly the same thing so we were then, then they're sort of managing hypertensive disease and its effect on the heart as well so lots of these bears might have been in heart failure or have systolic dysfunction uh poor myocardial function um and uh yeah it's probably been the most rewarding thing that i've done actually to go out and see that these bears are uh you know firstly we're you know that's one aspect but there's uh, so many other aspects as well they have kind of ophthalmic issues gi issues with uh, you know with the pancreas um and just husbandry as well you know to have that many older bears uh you know that have been handled in the way that they have uh, around it's like a geriatric population of bears so it's like a nursing home yeah it's like a nursing home for bears um and um you know and so there's so many different elements that you have to you have to kind of contend with to kind of keep those bears healthy um heart's one of them um and kind of feel very privileged to kind of be involved in that and that probably be the the most interesting species that i do on a regular basis occasionally you get the odd snake or you might get the odd you know you might get the odd ferret or rabbits um but um you know the that, that kind of felt probably like the most rewarding one really that you know we're helping these bears that have had a really tough like a really tough time 
Um, what kind of range of frequency are you using on the phased array probe to image a bear? So thankfully, a bear, because they've got these strapping big biceps like me, um, they um well it's not true actually for my biceps. I wish I had I wish I had biceps <laughs> like a bear. Um but um the the actually I don't know that I would, I probably wouldn't be able to put a t-shirt on. But um the um the kind of the main thing is when you lay them on their side, um they kind of scan a bit like a dog. So you can actually scan them like a right parasternal view and they scan very much like a dog. Um so the heart kind of sits very close to the chest wall. And I don't know whether some of it's just because they've got really bad confirmation of their chest. Um, because the other thing that a lot of these bears will end up having is like a corset a metal corset um around their chest so that they don't like um bend over to lick their stomas and cause their stoma to 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 heal so they can have these really deformed chests um very flat chests as well um but not all bears will have those but you when you see them they've got very very deformed skeletal abnormalities um but they will scan like a bit like a dog so you can like a low frequency probe like a low frequency dog probe like a four three hertz probe um you know are kind of the ones that we use um with our machine kind of a 3s and a, and a four and a five those are the types that we're using uh for these bears wow that's so interesting i have this kind of image in my head of you laying them out on a cardiac table one of those blue tables and just popping your hand underneath <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so because their biceps are so big, they almost like push themselves up off the table. So they act oh as their God. own table to get to get under their chest because they've got such big, big shoulders. Um, yeah, it, I, I like I like the thought of it thinking it's a bit like, you know, in, um, when the Queen did the um, the bit for Paddington for her Jubilee and her and Paddington are walking hand in hand. I wish it was as, <laughs> as, as kind of romantic as that. But, you know, I mean, these bears, when you see these bears having an altercation in their, you know, in their enclosures, which they do from time to time as occasional domestics, um, you just see how powerful they are, you know, and they can, they, you know, they, they can do some damage. So not quite the Paddington, the Paddington bear, but um, nevertheless, you kind of feel like you're doing a, a good job. being able No, to it's them. fantastic. And moving on from that, so you've got really interesting species. What's the most interesting case that you've seen apart from Asiatic bears in, in practice? Is there anything, because I imagine you see the very weird and wonderful being a referral cardiologist. Yeah, I um, I, I think... I'm a bit like a Labrador, you know, like a Labrador sees its food. It's quite happy just every day of it's being fed. It's a bit like me. Uh, I'm quite happy if I'm just scanning the heart and seeing things. So like, I guess I, I think probably a lot of things I'm like, wow, this is so interesting. And other people might be like, oh, well, we've seen hundreds of those. But um, I actually quite like seeing um, the congenital cases. They're my, in terms of kind of echo, uh, those are the ones that kind of often will challenge your your understanding and your pathophysiology and your anatomy a lot more. Um, so they kind of get you really thinking. Um, and then from the point of view of management, uh, congenital you know i love interventional cardiology so that's kind of a great big bit for me but also kind of managing those more complicated cases as well like you know mitral valve cases that have already been in heart failure have been on the standard therapy and you're like where do you go next these cat these dogs and cat these dogs and cats are still not completely stable where do we go from there so i like i like those difficult ones um but in terms of an interesting congenital case um the the run of the mill cases that you'll tend to see as a cardiologist as referrals will be a typical congenital thing so like the top three congenital well four congenital cases you'll see as a cardiologist is like a patent ductus arteriosus pulmonic stenosis ventricular septal defect and aortic stenosis those will be your top three our top four sorry and in a cat like the most common one is a, a vsd like the loud murmur in a kitten we're often gunning for it to be a vsd because if it's very loud as well often those cats live very happy lives with a very loud murmur but a very small vsd um but uh the more complex ones would be the ones where you have um the complex ones where you can actually do something to help them as well so a core tria triatum where you have an additional chamber to your um to your left or your right atrium be it a cat or a dog um but a core tria triatum dexter which is kind of like a 
double chambered right atrium. Uh, they're quite cool cases for echo because you kind of see uh, some kind of unusual flows through the, the atrium, but also um, they're really nice cases to try and manage as well, a bit kind of off of the off of the normal track of, of, of congenital cases that we can manage and manage really well. Um, so like that sort of case would be my interesting ones. And the ones that scratch your head are the, the cats. And, you know, you, you often will see cats. And you think, how on earth has this cat got to 10 or 11 years old with such bad heart disease? Like so much. And, you know, and it's had it since birth. It'd be a congenital defect. But those would be the ones where they've had them. Um, we used to call them like endocardial cushion defects, where um, all of the, well, the tissue that develops all the valves in the heart um, develops abnormally. It develops the valves and it also develops the septation of the ventricle and the atria. Um, and sometimes um, you get uh, kind of the new name is kind of an AVSD, an atrioventricular septal defect kind of encompasses everything um and those are kind of challenging cases to try and work those ones out so they're they're interesting uh interesting and they're also small as well the cat scan so you kind of really need a high quality pro for some of those to really get the information um but i think those are probably them so probably with all of that i'm probably leaning probably a bit towards congenital uh in terms of like what cases do i find um but that's also my kind of i guess my my workload um is a lot of congenital cases so kind of i guess that's where uh, you know that's kind of where i find the, the big interest but um i love i love the old dogs coming through too and cats with with heart disease too um but um they don't make you scratch head quite as much as the young ones with with odd congenital defects no that's really interesting and do you find that you are medically managed managing congenital defects or is it more moving towards the surgery side so i think often surgery wherever possible mm-hmm. you know in terms of thinking about long-term outcome um surgery if you can get a surgery done that avoids medical treatments, uh, if you can have a surgery that avoids them having to be on long-term meds, that's always going to be the ideal for a young animal. Um, and some conditions are curative as well. So, you know, like there are things that we can cure with a surgery, um, which medical management is probably like sort of, um, uh, you know, trying to fix a fire with a little a little garden hose, like a garden watering can when you need a great big hose. So um, I, I guess like something like a PDA, if it, you, there's not much you can do medically unless they go into heart failure but once they go into heart failure medical treatment doesn't work for very long uh, whereas you could have cured that with a closure of the pda in, in a young one so um yeah i think that uh there's probably more surgical than medical management for those ones perfect uh Well, that's been a really interesting conversation and what a way to kick off 2023. I'd just like to thank Chris again for joining us. Um, If you'd like any more information, then please check out the IMV website for some great echocardiography resources. And if you want to put your skills into practice, then why not join us on our echo courses this year? It would be great to see you. We'll be back next month for another episode of the podcast. But until then, it's a goodbye from all of us. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Goodbye.